In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you are 12 years or younger, come on down to the front. All right. Got my shoes untied. All right. Hey, guys. You're looking very festive. Christmas trees and reindeers and whatnots. All right. We ready? All right, so... I want us to imagine something this morning, okay? Let's say we found out that one day very soon, a big, big flood was going to come to your neighborhood. What should be some of the first things we do? Uh, Build a boat. Build a boat, right? Or That's a good a one. That should, yeah. That's, yeah if you food, have a boat. Get some food, water. Okay, not water. <laughs> Flood's coming. Yeah, seawater. <laughs> Maybe it's a freshwater flood. We don't know. How about this? If you knew a flood was coming to your neighborhood, a big, giant flood, do you think you would tell people that a flood was coming? Yes. Yeah, that would probably be right to do. You wouldn't just come home quiet and not say anything. You'd start telling people, right? Now, if you told someone that a flood was coming, what would be the most responsible thing they could do? Uh, they could get help and build a boat as well. Right. Prepare themselves and tell other, tell other people too. Now, if a flood is coming, you have to do something to prepare for it, right? You can't just sit there and do nothing. Now, in our story, we know that the flood is coming for a fact. We know that it's coming, but we don't know the exact minute that it's going to show up. Maybe the flood gets here in five minutes. Maybe the flood shows up in five days. We just don't know how long it's going to take before it shows up. So let me ask you this question. Would it be wise for someone to hear news about this flood and say to themselves, I think I'm going to go inside and take a nap. No. No. No, who would do that, right? What if they said, I think I'm just going to take the next three days to think about what to do, and then I'll make a decision about the flood. No. No. Also not wise, right? Why wouldn't those be wise choices? Because the flood, those... Yeah, the flood might show up before they're ready for it, and then, then they die, and that's not good. That's not how you win the game. So if a flood showed up all of a sudden and you weren't prepared for it, that would be bad, right? Some things in this world are so serious that we have to prepare ourselves for them. Did you know that in today's gospel text, it's kind of like our story about the flood in your neighborhood? In the gospel text, John the Baptist is warning people, just like we did with the flood, that something so significant and life-changing is on its way that people have to prepare themselves. I'm going to read just a little bit of it, okay, from our gospel text this morning. So John the Baptist says this. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So in our story about the flood, we said that we should travel around the neighborhood and tell people the flood was coming. Was John traveling around and telling people that something was coming? Yeah. Yes. He was traveling all around uh, the Jordan Valley telling them that. Now, John didn't tell people that a flood was coming. What did John tell people was coming? Something really Jesus, right? The Lord. Like if someone said, hey, God's about to show up. <laughs> Are you taking a nap? No. no. You're getting ready, right? So the coming of the Lord is a pretty big deal. 
It's such a big deal that the people should prepare themselves, right? What did John say the people should do to prepare themselves? What message did John proclaim that they should do? Listen to this. And John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is John telling the people they need to do to prepare for the Lord's coming? Right, to repent and be baptized. Now, before you go back to your seats, here's some things I want you to think about. So first, Christians believe that God, that Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, right? And God's coming was a big, big deal. But it would be a big, big deal no matter when God came to earth, right? Yeah. So... Christians also believe that Jesus, while he came to earth 2,000 years ago, is also coming back to earth soon, right? We think he's going to come again. So the message of John at the Lord's first coming was what? What did he, how did he tell the people to prepare themselves? Uh, get baptized. Yes, to repent and be baptized. Now, what message do you think Christians have of the Lord's second coming? What do we tell people? repent and be baptized we're just singing the same old tune 2,000 year old song still singing it you guys have any questions no you got it all straight yes Daniel yes what I love it please give me something good these are great you're going to be six You can't know what your present is yet. That's not fair. He's getting a motorcycle for his sixth birthday. Everybody high-five Bob on the way out of church this morning. That's number one. That's what you do. Yes? Do you have an idea on when Jesus will come again? I have no idea when Jesus will come again. None. When's the flood going to show up? I don't know. I just know that it is. All right, guys. Great job. Back to your seats. The very first time a group of people waited on the coming of the Messiah, the very first advent, was a time of waiting that lasted for almost 2,000 years. During this time of waiting, Israel experienced highs and lows, times of plenty, times of famine. They thrived under good kings and they suffered under evil ones. They endured countless foreign invasions and catastrophes, but through it all, God preserved them. Against all odds, God kept his promise to Israel. Some 700 years before Christ was born, Assyria invaded Israel and enslaved the northern ten tribes. These ten tribes, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were taken into exile, and they were lost to history forever. 150 years after that, Babylon overthrew Assyria and invaded the land as well. In that invasion, they enslaved the remaining two tribes of Israel and carted them off into exile too. It was at this moment that all the promises of God, all the promises made to Abraham hung by one single exposed thread. God's people stood on the precipice of utter destruction and with them so did the hope of the whole world. No people had ever returned from exile. If you went in, you simply did not come back out. And if God were to keep his promises he made to Abraham, a promise that the Messiah would descend from him and through him all nations would be blessed. 
if God were to keep that promise, then somehow, some way, the people of Israel must survive in circumstances that no other people in the history of the world had ever endured. Guys, there are few moments in the Bible like this. Very few moments that have this level of tension and uncertainty. There were few moments where seemingly everything God has promised hinge only on the impossible happening. But as it turns out, God is just fine with impossible circumstances. In fact, it seems to be his bread and butter. After 70 years of Babylonian enslavement, after 70 years of living in exile, the Jews watched as an unknown Persian man, a man known to history as Cyrus the Great, overthrew and defeated the empire of Babylon and did so without even firing a shot. It seemed that the impossible scenario Israel needed had just become a bit more plausible. But God wasn't done. After his victory, Cyrus did something that no one saw coming. Cyrus told the people of Israel they could go home. They could go back to the land from where they were taken by the Babylonians, and as if that weren't enough, Persia itself would fund their trip back. And oh yeah, just to make sure we're making amends for everything, Persia would also fund the rebuilding of the temple. The impossible had happened. And by the grace of God, the people were back in the land, the temple was rebuilt, and with its reconstruction, sacrifices were once offered again. The law of Moses was being read and studied. The people were repenting of sin, and for the first time in their long history in the land, Israel did not follow after foreign gods. The gods that had plagued them for centuries, Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Molech, they were never worshipped again by the Jews. Israel seemed to have turned a corner. They seemed determined to set themselves apart for the Lord and prepare for the coming of the Messiah. 400 years passed. And in that time of Advent waiting, Israel watched Persia fall to Alexander the Great, and then they watched as the Greek Empire itself splintered and fell. And just as it seemed like Israel had weathered the storm of successive occupations, just as it looked like they could look into the future with a bit of hope and optimism, yet another conqueror came to town. And for many in Israel, the arrival and occupation of the Romans was the last straw. They just couldn't put up with another nation coming into their land and subjugating them. There were many in Israel in one way or another that turned into zealots. There were many that focused on the overthrow and expulsion of the Romans. Many in Israel turned their focus in anger, anger towards the injustice and the illegitimate rule of Rome. And there's hardly a person in this room who could blame them for doing so. They were so fed up, and, and by God's help, they were going to do something about it. Now, lest you think the average Jewish zealot that we're talking about is just some rash hothead, please remember that all it takes for most of us to rise to this level of zealotry is the injustice of one missed pass interference call. That's all it takes. All it takes for most of us to become indignant and seething with anger is getting cut off in traffic or your Amazon package is delayed for a day. But the Jews had not suffered minor inconveniences or slight annoyances. No, they had suffered for centuries in unspeakable ways, enslaved by one country or another for as long as they could remember. So as I said, who could blame them 
for being fed up and wanting to do something about it. You would too. But God hears them. God understands they want to do something about it, and so God obliges their motivation to do something about it. God responds to the suffering of his people at the hands of the Romans, and what God proposes they do about being fed up is simple. The word of God came to John the Baptist, and God's message was this. Get ready, the Lord is coming, so repent and be baptized. God tells Israel, you want to do something about Rome? You want to do something about injustice and evil? Then repent of your sins, and you be baptized. Interesting, right? I mean, how in the world is the repentance and baptism of the average Jewish person in any way connected to the overthrow of Rome? How are repentance and baptism connected with ending yet another unjust enslavement of Israel? That's actually a pretty simple answer. God commanded Israel to repent and be baptized in the midst of a Roman enslavement. And this is the same command Israel received when they were first freed from enslavement in Egypt. In Egypt, God tells the sons of Jacob to repent of their sins and prepare to cross through the waters of the Red Sea. And now God's message comes full circle and yet remains the same. God now tells Israel to repent and prepare themselves to cross through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but the waters of baptism. And John's message of repentance and baptism is an urgent one. It's urgent because the coming of the Lord, the coming of God's Messiah, was about to wash over them like a flood, washing over a neighborhood. And there was no time to waste. He wasn't quite there yet, but be assured, he was just around the corner. And when he finally arrived, he would set all things straight, and he would make all things new. And this is what I find so fascinating about the Advent message of John. His message is, get ready, Jesus is almost here. His message is, prepare your hearts, the waiting is almost over. His message is, repent and be baptized so when the Messiah appears, you find yourself ready to welcome him. That message, that first Advent message is still the message of the church today. Our message is and has always been, repent and be baptized. So when you look at the world and you see wickedness and injustice, when you see sin and death in the headlines and there's malevolence and hate on every street corner, when you see the whole creation crying out to God, Lord, how much longer? And you think to yourself, what can I do in a world like this? What can I do in a world overrun by reckless evil? Know that God's answer is still the same. Repent and be baptized. Just as Israel waited in hopeful expectation for the first coming of the Messiah, the first advent, the church waits in hopeful expectation for his coming again. You and I this very day are in the midst of a second advent. A second advent that will end when we behold the second coming of Jesus. I pray that we heed the words of John and Jesus alike. Prepare yourselves Let today be the day of your repentance, and if you have yet to receive the sacrament of baptism, then wait no longer, for the day of the Lord is at hand. His return is imminent, and at his return, he wishes for you to welcome him as a bride would welcome her groom.
with open arms and a heart bursting with joy at the sight of her love's return. Will you come to him? Will you prepare yourselves and repent and be baptized? I pray you will. Amen.